Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Danny Wardle, a PhD student at the Dianoia Institute at the Australian Catholic University. We'll be talking about the benefits of undertaking a research master's, Danny's research on social ontology, and the recent proposed redundancies at the Dianoia Institute. If you'd like to get in touch with Danny, you can follow him on Twitter at, at MaximalWorm or on Blue Sky at DannyWardle.org. Danny Wardle, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thanks, it's good to be here. So between your PhD and your undergraduate studies, you undertook a research master's at the University of Adelaide. I'm wondering if it's common to progress straight from your undergraduate studies to a research master's, or would one tend to undertake a taught master's program in between? Yes, so it's very rare. It's much more common in Australia to take after completing a three-year undergraduate degree, to do an extra year that we tend to call honours that you apply for. And the idea is that is a taught course. You do usually anywhere from two to four courses, and then you complete an honours thesis, which is usually around 18,000 words with one supervisor, and then it's marked by someone else in your philosophy department. So it's quite uncommon for people to do a research master's. People usually go straight from honours to PhD. But increasingly, a lot of schools are believing that it's not useful to have students go straight from honours to PhD because there's just a big leap from doing very little research to doing a degree that's focused almost entirely on research. Yeah, I think that sounds exactly right. So I myself did a research master's at Cambridge. They have this master of philosophy degree where the objective of it is to write basically three papers, one in each of the three terms. And it's all like original research. You know, it's different to what you might have been doing as an undergrad. You know, obviously you attempt to be original, but a lot of it is just kind of understanding the debates that people have and trying to, you know, put your own view in there. But, you know, there's there's something different about that. So I can understand wanting a little gap between the undergraduate study and the PhD. But then I guess, what would you say is the difference between a, a re, sort of a research master's and a and a PhD? Do you think it's like, is the research master's like a mini PhD? Besides, I guess, the difference in time, what would you say is the difference? Oh, absolutely. I would say it's a mini PhD. It's a PhD that's shorter, the expectations uh, in terms of making an original contribution to the field that's substantive and justified. You don't have to do that. Obviously, you want to do original research and you have to have arguments and things, but there's no expectation that you're going to be really doing some groundbreaking work. So structurally, was your research master's, I guess, similar to Kyle's, where it was something like three papers across the course of the year? Or did you submit a long thesis, a single long thesis come the end of the program? So I did a two-year research master's, and it was two years in the same sense that PhD programs are often three or four years in Australia. So it was two calendar, full calendar years rather than, say, semesters or terms. And normally, a lot of people just complete a long thesis. It's around 40,000 words. But I ended up doing something similar to that. I ended up doing a, a bunch of three papers and just collecting them together, explaining how they're related. And that was the overall goal. And that came about mostly by accident. I started early on writing about 
these questions about persistence, how objects persist through time and change. And I started getting into slightly different debates in the same topic. And my supervisor eventually just told me that I have projects that wouldn't fit in an ordinary thesis. It would be maybe better to just do a thesis by publication format where I write three papers and then possibly look at if they're good enough trying to publish them in the future. Yeah, we had a um, another guest come on last year, Mitchell Barrington, who did a research master's as well. Um, actually, a research master's at the same institution where you're currently doing your doctoral studies, um, the Australian Catholic University. Uh, he spoke very highly of the idea of doing a research master's in, in, in general. I think he had a, a particularly interesting experience where he'd been shut out of PhD programs one year, did a research master's, and then got all of these offers from, from top universities. Uh, his thought was, I think, that at least one of his thoughts was that doing that research master's really allowed him to improve as a, as a philosopher and with essay writing in a way that could then get him into top programs after. Unlike yourself and Kyle, I didn't do a research master's. I did a taught master's. And I personally found that after my first year of the PhD, my essay writing had improved so much. And I did think, wow, gosh, if I had done a research master's, you know, I would have had a much stronger writing sample, I think, by the time I came on to my PhD studies. Is that something that you think transpired in, in your own case? Do you think you were able to really develop during those two years in a way that might not have been the case had you done a taught program instead? Definitely. Although I will say my decision to do a research master's was partly by accident. I was advised by some of the people in the faculty at the time at Adelaide that going and doing honours, that was maybe not the best idea because the honours program was very difficult and research master's is just a higher degree. It's worth more. It's more applicable, as you said, to doing philosophical research, applying to PhD programs, writing papers. And there's another aspect to it, which is that a decent number of research master's places are funded. So I was able to get a stipend from the university for the two years during my master's, whereas I wouldn't have gotten any money for my honors. Right. Yes. And I think the same was true for Cambridge and the research master's there. Like it was a little bit easier to get funding for that. A little cheaper than the uh, LSE master's I had applied for as well. <laughs> so yeah, that was an added incentive. <laughs> Moving to your... PhD thesis, which is also kind of integrating a bunch of papers, if I'm not mistaken. What is the sort of underlying theme of your dissertation and sort of, I guess, methodologically, how much thought do you give to the guiding theme underpinning the papers that are the theme of your dissertation? So it's something that I don't think about that much. And then when I do try to think about it, I tend to come up with something somewhat incoherent. But generally, I'm looking at Theories of social groups and institutions, right? Things like clubs, but also things like political parties, genders, races, other kinds of formations. Looking at questions like, what are they? How many of them exist? Do some of them have members? Do some of them not have members? How are they different? And also looking at questions to do with groups and location. So one of my papers I'm writing at the moment is dealing with this question of, our social groups, say Arsenal Football Club, is Arsenal Football Club located where its members are, where members is understood to mean the players of the team? Or are they located at Emirates Stadium, which is their home stadium? Or are they just not located anywhere? Or are they located maybe in multiple places at once? I guess another part of that is it's an applied, it's I guess what some people would call applied metaphysics. So 
one paper I'm writing at the moment as well looks at this issue of universal welfare. So governments tend to come up with different kinds of welfare policies, and some of them are considered universal, which is not a particularly well understood term, even in the policy world. But the thought is that universal welfare is welfare that's not means tested. So, for example, a means tested age pension is available only to people who have a certain, uh, below a certain threshold of wealth or income. And means a universal age pension would go to all people that meet the age requirement. But some people want to go further and say, for a welfare benefit to be truly universal, it has to go to everyone in the relevant population. Maybe it has to go to everyone in the in the state or everyone in the world, possibly. And yeah, so I'm skeptical of this claim because on the one hand, it doesn't line up with the way experts tend to use the term. And expert use is inconsistent, but they usually do use, they usually do say things like an age pension could be universal or means tested. But also, I think it confuses the goal of universal welfare. And also, they make mistakes in conceiving, particularly of certain benefits like unemployment benefits. So some people will say, we need a universal basic income, which is this idea that you give everyone a certain amount of money per month, and you give it to everyone in the country. And some people conceive of that as something like a, a universal or non-means-tested unemployment benefit. Whereas I think that unemployment benefits, the category of unemployed people is by definition going to involve some means testing. The way we define unemployed is firstly by this question of are you looking for work because we exclude people who aren't in the labor market from the group of unemployed people. And secondly, do you earn above a certain level of income? Because some people are technically unemployed even though they do a little bit of work because they just earn so little money that we tend to think that they need government support and that they haven't really, they don't really have a full-time job or adequate part-time work. And so I think in those cases, it's just a confusing way of understanding things to say universal means that everyone has to get, get it. On my view, universal just means it's not means tested and you can still have things like a universal age pension or a universal child benefit even though they don't go to the whole population. That's really interesting. Uh, I think, at least from, from the way I, I, I'm thinking about it, I, I wonder if there's a, a couple of different ways in which your, your project is going there, or at least a couple of different ways in which it could be going. So I'm interested in asking, it, it, do you conceive of this project as something conceptual? Are you just, is this strictly at the level of like applied metaphysics and you're asking, what does it mean for universal welfare to be universal? Or is there something normative as well going on here? Are you asking that we maybe, you know, should adopt a certain um, concept of universal welfare, maybe engineer our concept um, in, a, in a different way as to attain certain practical benefits? Um, which of these ways do you conceive your project going? Is it kind of this conceptual side? Is it this normative side? Or is it doing a little bit of both? So I think it is a, it is a little bit of both, but it's mostly on the conceptual side, looking at what does this term universal welfare mean? and you do get some inconsistency in use, and some people disagree about how to use this word, but it seems to be this fairly stable meaning that universal is the opposite of means-tested, and I think it is a little bit normative in that I think if you, get this, if you get this the wrong way, it can lead you down an odd path when it comes to policy design. So, for example, the last election, 
Um, one of the political parties in Australia had this idea of totally just expanding, making the unemployment benefit in Australia less means-tested and more universal. And essentially, this would mean that unemployment benefits would taper out to actually quite a high level of income, sort of somewhere around the median income. And I think that's just the wrong way to think of unemployment benefits. At that point, it's no longer an unemployment benefit. Certainly, you can say, I don't support unemployment benefits, and I think we should have a universal basic income. I think that's fine, and that argument can be had. But I think it's a bit suspicious when people end up supporting that sort of policy proposal of making an unemployed benefit go to people with higher incomes. I think that's just, they've made a mistake, basically. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, I, I take it from what you're saying that the conceptual and the normative are just kind of like entangled here in interesting ways based on like the sort of work you do. Would you say that's a fair assessment of like how you're, how you're, how you're conceiving your project? Yeah, I would say it's almost all of the social ontology or social metaphysics that people call it has a normative element to it because we're talking about these social entities, things in the world that really matter to us. They all seem to be, in some sense, morally relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds right to me. That's really interesting. And I think one of the moves you're kind of responding to is the ways in which people in social ontology, which is the sort of field that you're working in, are kind of trying to cut down on the on the number of social groups that exist. Well, you know, what would be their motivation for doing so? And what do you think is the the problem that arises when you do cut down on the number of social groups? So there are some simple explanatory motivations behind cutting down the number of social groups. One is just a sort of simple Occam's razor appealing to the simplest explanation. You know, you want less things in your ontology. You don't want a worldview. You don't want a view uh, or a metaphysic that has infinitely many things. You want to have finitely many things, and all the things there are relevant and important and things that everyone would agree exist. You don't want any kind of gerrymandered or weird objects in your ontology that don't seem to be doing anything useful for explanation. Okay, right. So, But you nevertheless think that there's something sort of like, you know, the pragmatic motivations here, the sort of Occam's razor thing, does that go too far in your analysis? Or uh, I don't know. Do you think that like there are other reasons to have these social groups besides how useful they are for explanations? So I don't think there's a principled way of cutting down on the number of social groups in our ontology. Usually the way that philosophers try to do this is they'll adopt something like the Goldilocks constraint. And this is this view that an ontology of social groups should only include social groups that are commonsensical, that ones that we all agree exist, or that figure in useful social scientific explanations and shouldn't overgenerate social groups. And it's very hard to do this because the word social group is kind of a term of art, right? We don't normally talk about social groups. We talk about things like our group of friends or Arsenal Football Club or Parliament. We don't talk about social groups. Those are a topic for social ontology and weird metaphysicians. And so I think maybe one good analogy here is the term social group is a bit like the term geographical entity, right? There are good reasons to think that, for example, questions like how many countries are there, that's a question where you don't want to overgenerate countries. You don't want an ontology that says there are infinitely many countries in the world. Mm -hmm. Whether you have an ontology that says there are infinitely many geographical entities or not, I think is just not 
particularly important question. And most importantly, I think the ways in which philosophers try to cut down on the number of social groups usually just ends up doubling down on this idea of kind of thick socialness, this thin notion of something being social as opposed to not social or not socially significant. Another part of this, I suppose, is I don't find some of the motivations maybe that aren't explicitly mentioned by philosophers. There's this worry that I think philosophers haven't explicitly mentioned that if we admit too many social groups into ontology, this is going to mean that there are going to be these infinitely many social groups, including ones that don't really matter to us morally. And that maybe rules out or takes our attention away from ones that really do matter, like genders or social classes. And so I guess the kind of view that I have is not on its own particularly attuned to normative concerns. And if it were, I'd be saying that you know it's very valuable to count innumerable blades of grass and candidate blades of grass. And so my view, I guess, on its own is doesn't give you that kind of worldview, but I think it's perfectly compatible with that worldview. It's compatible with the fact that some groups that existed in the, that we didn't think existed in the past, we now know exist today, right? My kind of plenitudinous worldview is extremely sensitive to variation across possible worlds and the possibility of social change. There are all sorts of groups out there that have interesting persistence conditions. In other words, they can stop existing depending on certain rules. And some of those conditions for social groups tend to be extrinsic. The social group can stop existing because people say that it stops existing. And so I suppose this view makes it much more straightforward to include groups that depend on various different social factors and normative factors in our ontology. Uh, thanks very much, Danny. That's, that's really interesting. It's good to hear that, I guess, summary, uh, not just of, of what your doctoral research is doing right now, but also um, the different ways in which you're taking it relative to, um, I guess, what's been said in the literature to date as well. Uh, and of course, where you're housing uh, your doctoral research right now is at the Australian Catholic University, at the uh, Dianoia Institute specifically, which has been, I guess, in the philosophy news over the last few weeks. W- would you mind, first of all, just giving us a, a brief overview of, of what's been going on? Sure. So the management of the Australian Catholic University has put forward two weeks ago a draft academic change plan where they proposed to disestablish the DNO Institute of Philosophy completely. And this means that all the staff there, many of whom were very recently hired, including some that started only a few weeks ago or were planning to start very soon and have just gotten visas, are being made redundant, which means they basically they lose their jobs. And a few of them are kind of in this position where they have to compete for, I believe, four remaining jobs at a different institute called the Institute of Religion and Critical Inquiry. So to be clear, there's four jobs remaining for philosophers at the university in a different institute within the university. How does that compare with the number of faculty members in philosophy at the Dianoia Institute right now? Are, Are there quite a bit more than four members of faculty? So I believe there are around 15 members. There are four positions that are left, basically positions that haven't been announced yet. They haven't announced what the details are of those positions. So a lot of people suspect that those positions will be offered, will be provided with junior salaries 
and they won't be the same kind of positions they had at Dianoia. They'll have a much higher teaching load, um, less of a research load, and they'll also get paid less. What a nightmarish situation. I mean, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, that that's, been, that's been going on around you right now. But what's puzzling to me about this situation is that the Dianoia Institute hasn't been around for very long, right? It's only been around for a few years. So I'm guessing these members of faculty must be, um, must be philosophers who have only recently moved to the Institute or, or even to Australia more generally. It's a gigantic rug pull. The decision to start, Dianoia has only really started in 2019. And yes, a lot of people only recently moved here or only recently you know, bought houses or had children here. And this is a large part the weird change is because of change in top-level management at the university. So the previous vice chancellor was motivated in part by this worry that the Australian Catholic University wasn't doing enough research. And if they weren't doing enough research, then their accreditation as a university would be under threat. And so they started all these institutes in the humanities, including the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry, the Annoy Institute of Philosophy, the Institute for Humanities and Social Studies. This idea behind this was that building a really strong research faculty in the humanities is quite easy. You just need to hire people and offer them offices and good opportunities to collaborate with other great researchers. You don't need to offer them state-of-the-art lab equipment or super amazing hadron colliders or anything like that, you just need to offer them an office. But more recently, we have a bit of a change, both at a government level and at the university governance level. We have a new vice chancellor and a new deputy vice chancellor, and they do not care for the research strategy of their predecessors. And this is in part motivated by a government that is very much sees universities as a tool for social mobility, as a tool to get lower income students into university so they can make higher incomes when they get jobs. And the government has essentially signaled to universities that they're quite hostile to the idea of research being a priority and hostile to the idea in particular of using funds from student fees to fund cross-fund research. Leaving to one side for a moment, um... I mean, I, I guess the, the ethics of this decision made by the powers that be and the, the effects that that's going to have on, on yourselves as, as graduate students and also on the members of faculty there. Leaving that to one side for a moment and just to take a look back at, at the, Dian, the Dianoia Institute over the last few years, I mean, the view from the outside is that this move towards research excellence um, in, in philosophy at the Australian Catholic University has been a great success, right? I mean, if you're looking at, for example, um, the Philosophical Gourmet Report um, and where uh, the Dianoia Institute, so the ACU, slots in on there uh, as a graduate program. I mean, it's ranked very highly. I think, is it in the top two or three in Australasia and in uh, just outside of the top 30 in the world? They've got great members of faculty there doing great research. Does this fit your experience from within over the last few years as well? I mean, has it been as great a place to study as it looks from the outside? Oh, absolutely. It's an institute filled with superstars and people who will be superstars when they get old enough to be considered superstars. The research efficiency of the institute has been incredible. So they, I believe, are identified by most other Australian universities as the most productive philosophy faculty. But the Australian Catholic University in their 
academic change plan has decided to ignore a lot of this and also to do some sneaky things to maybe gerrymander the stats. So, for example, because DNOI was only created in 2019, only existed for four years, half of those years were during the pandemic where staff were trapped overseas. And so a lot of the successes were achieved despite all these significant headwinds and tight windows of opportunity. But this also means that the university can look at Dianoia and say, oh, over the long term, they haven't achieved too much because they've only been around so long. Even though in the years we have existed, we've made massive ground. For example, I did not consider going to the Australian Catholic University at all before Dianoia existed. It was not on the map at all. And I only moved, and I'm sure the other graduate students at Dianoia will tell you the same, because of the people working there. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I guess what I was going to finish off by asking you is how you think this is going to affect your your future studies? What do you think is next for you? So I think I might be looking for a new university to finish my <laughs> PhD, possibly interstate in Australia, possibly in the US. I'm not too sure yet, but that's a live option for me right now. A lot of the people at ACU have that as a live option because ACU was a pretty competitive program to get into. Another thing as well is that this uh, disestablishment of the Institute does mean there's still a philosophy faculty at ACU, but a lot of them do continental philosophy or don't specialize in our areas of interest. So there's one student, for example, that does work on quantum gravity. And there's simply no one in that faculty that could supervise that project. And they only started very, very, very recently. I would not have a suitable supervisor in a few weeks. The university has given us some half-hearted assurances that we will still have appropriate supervision arrangements. We'll get new supervisors. But this is mostly just a formality. They're required to, as far as I can tell, honor their commitment to have us as graduate students and let us finish our candidature. But there's no real sense in which they care about that at all. So to put it simply, I think everyone at Dianoia right now is looking at getting away from there as fast as possible. Well, you have our condolences that you've even put in this position. Um, there, there is just one final question I want to ask, actually, which is, um, that, I mean, this is a terrifying story for all graduate students. Nobody expects this to happen to them at their program. And I'm just wondering, for the sake of other graduate students elsewhere who, who are worried about this kind of thing happening to them as well, were there any warning signs um, of this happening? Or, or was it really the case that everybody was, was blindsided by this decision? So I would say there are some warning signs that things were going to change at Dianoia. There was a sense that the new university management didn't really see the point in Dianoia existing. When we told them about our research output, they sort of shrugged those claims off and said, oh, well, every institute and every department wants to say that they do amazing research. So there was a worry that perhaps people would have their contracts converted to contracts that involve more teaching and that there would be a pause on hiring and maybe less funding available to hold seminars. But no one was expecting the entire institute to be disestablished. That came out of nowhere. Well, again, I'm... Sorry to hear of those experiences, Danny, but thanks so much for joining us and for sharing them with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. 
you can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com. 